If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. Welcome to Data Chats, a podcast by Pragmatic Institute and the Data Incubator, where we tackle data topics and trends with experts, industry leaders, instructors, and alumni. I'm your host, Chris Richardson. Today, I'm sitting down with Kirsten Martin, Professor of Technology Ethics in the Mendoza College of Business at the University of Notre Dame and author of Ethics of Data and Analytics, Concepts and Cases. Very happy to be talking to you about this book, this collection of a lot of important ideas that apply to a number of different industries and, and ways of thinking about data. So Kirsten, first of all, thank you. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm good. Thanks for having me. This is fun. I'm looking forward to picking your brain. I know there's there's a lot of things we could get into, but maybe for our audience, you could say a little bit about where you're coming from and your interest, particularly in, in ethics and data. Sure. So... I've, I'm currently in technology ethics, and I've always been in a business school as an academic. I started as an undergrad, I was an engineer, and then I coded like for a consulting firm for a while, and then I went back to get my MBA, and then I went out and worked in telecom for a while, and the internet, it was web hosting, which was newfangled in the 90s, and then I went back to get my PhD. So it was kind of like a normal person until you know my mid-30s or early 30s. And then I went back to get my PhD in a business school around business ethics. But with my engineering background and my experience, I was always interested in the ethics of technology within businesses. So I was focused on privacy for a while or how is technology value-laden and what are the responsibilities of organizations and businesses that produce and use technology. So that has always been my focus. And then more recently with the focus on the use of data and the use of analytics, it's become more so around algorithms, AI, data analytics in general. And then at Notre Dame, I'm actually able to teach a course on the ethics of data analytics, which is what prompted me to think about this book. But my, my work has always been within a business school, within focused on corporations and what their obligations are, but always around technology and technology ethics. Yeah, excellent. I mean, I love how you you merged the sort of academic theoretical landscape with the the practical business experience. And that's that's what we're here to talk about today, especially as it applies to data and the people working with data. And so, yeah, maybe you could say a little bit more about the impetus for ethics of data and analytics concepts and cases. How did it get started? Why is it why was it necessary for you to produce this? So, when I first came to Notre Dame, I was I had the opportunity to teach a course in the ethics of data analytics and masters of science of data analytics and data analytics or business analytics as an undergrad major is extremely popular across business schools. And slowly schools are starting to offer the ethics of data analytics or ethics of AI within business schools. It's not uncommon to offer that same type of course outside of business schools in an information school or sometimes in around engineering ethics or sometimes within a philosophy department. But within the business school, it's a little bit different. And so what prompted me was in designing the syllabus for my course, I realized that there was just nothing out there to, and that the vast majority of people being asked to teach this course 
in a business school were actually not faculty members of the business school. A lot of times it's an adjunct that's being mm -hmm. hired that's in industry, but doesn't have like, well, what articles should we be reading or what are the cases or what are the main ideas in this topic, data ethics of data analytics that I have to cover if I'm gonna offer a class in this. And so I saw this as an opportunity to kind of give a skeleton or a framework to say, if you're teaching the ethics of data analytics, you, this is what you need to know about privacy. You know, so you can teach it in different ways. There are different cases that you can use. There are different theories of privacy or surveillance or fairness or discrimination and going on down the line. But like these are the main topics within this overall field that you can kind of pick and choose what you want to teach. Um, and that was the impetus is just I saw when I pulled my syllabus together, I there was no framework of like, what is this field within a business school? I could mm -hmm. see it in philosophy, but not within a business school. And so that was the impetus of maybe I should actually make this into a book. So I contacted a few, you know, my advisor from my PhD and she was, she did the same type of book for business ethics back in, back in the day. So back in the old school days, and she was very supportive and thought it was a great idea. And so that, that was the impetus behind it. Yeah. Yeah. And it's great because, uh, like you said, I mean, my background, I did ethics courses in philosophy departments mm -hmm. and there was always these great questions, like just interesting scenarios, like things like the trolley problem, right? Mm -hmm. Is, you know, if you're going to, for anyone who hasn't heard of that, if you're going to move a switch and save some people who may otherwise be run over, but mm -hmm. you know that it's going to run over somebody else, is it worth doing? Is it ethical to do? But uh, the reason I bring this up is because like nobody's ever going to be in a situation like that, really. Yeah, yeah, right, right, right. Uh, extrapolate, but these these kind of really interesting questions, like you know, do you hit if you're an AI and you're driving a car, do you set it to hit a young person or an old person if they're both right. on the road, right? Like that's right. never going to happen. But they are really interesting questions. Right. If anyone's listening to this and they're you know on a day-to-day -day basis working with data, they're definitely not worried about those issues in particular. So what should they be interested in? Or what are some, some cases you've seen where, you know, a lot of people are going to face a situation like that and therefore it's maybe more concrete for them? I think that's, and the trolley problem is actually a great example of the way that conceptual problem that's interesting to introduce ethical theories of rule-based deontology versus consequentialism is really interesting, like as a thought experiment, but that in a business school, when you're teaching people who are extremely action oriented, so people in a business school, you have to tie it to their day-to-day -day existence of their actual jobs, right? Like that's, it's a very different way of teaching than in, in other fields where they're not sure what job they're going to have. They don't, it's not exactly clear. And so these folks want to know what they, when they have a problem in front of them, what is the answer or more rightly, like what are the questions that I have to ask? And so one of the things when I teach the course is we come up with, so given this case and this set of theories, what question would you ask of any program that you ever saw? Like, so what, what are the generalizable questions? Like for example, around privacy, where did you get this data? I mean, even that is a question, right? Like where did you get it? Like so how, what, what data did you not use because it was a privacy violation? If the answer is, none, I used all of it, then you have to think, okay, what data should we not be using because it could be considered a privacy violation? And so those are like the type of, uh, one, the cases need to be very action focused, like real cases that either are cases that are stylized, like um, a recommendation algorithm, or cases that are actually articles from the, you know, the headlines, the where they actually are talking about a hiring algorithm. 
And then the second piece is like getting the students to actually think through what are the main questions I need to always ask given this theory or this case. And that makes it more action oriented versus the, the trolley problem, which I agree with you. I don't, I find it a distraction a lot of times when we focus on the trolley problem as the answer to it. And so I think when you, to your question of like, what do they need to know? I, it, I mean, that's in some ways why there are like all these like very disparate sections of the book is to say, you need to know something about surveillance. You know, you need to know something about privacy. You need to know something about valuelessness of technology. But a lot of times the answers that we come up with in the class are not, they're not gonna see that exact model in the future. And that's why we yeah. use case studies in business schools is not to teach them when I was a business student, how to make sausage for operations class. I'm never gonna make sausage, which was my case that I used in operations class in my MBA. But we learned like the questions that you have to ask or what are the, the conceptual equations that we have to use in the future given any type of operations, you know, that type of idea. And so that's the way it translates in the, to the book and the how to teach the book is the cases are interesting, but there's gonna be new technology in just five years, but you need to still know these ideas from privacy. Yeah, well, and that's just it, right? That like even just these two words, ethics and data, mm-hmm. represent huge spectrums of of questions, of situations. So, can you say a little bit about how you started organizing the book and how it ultimately was divided or or categorized, at least right. for this purpose? Yeah, that's that's a good question. So, I mean, it was a yeah. I mean, tactically, it was a huge spreadsheet of like, these are the technologies I want to cover and make sure I hit, you know, emotion recognition and faces, facial identification, you know, just actual like large language models, like just actual technologies that I thought we need to have a case in here. If we're going to talk about data analytics, we need to talk about predictive algorithms because those are used a lot. So, and then I had across the top, like, what are the main concepts that I think need to be covered within this, um, you know, and then trying to match up what cases go well with different concepts. And so the way that I identified them was I would go out and look at a lot of, well, I mean, I'm active in the field, so I, I go to the conferences and I see what people are writing about. But that being said, a lot of people, for example, write about discrimination in AI, which is a bare minimum. You shouldn't discriminate based on the law, yeah. but that's not ethics of data. I mean, like that's a, um, that's a fairly low bar of like yeah. an organization not discriminating. And so a lot of it I gathered from other, I did look at other people's syllabus across like philosophy or, but what I would do is take someone in information school or philosophy and then get the ideas, but then maybe the readings might be more tailored to what I wanted a business student to learn versus the reading that they had. And the cases were different and very applied. So that's, that's kind of how I found the general, the kind of the 10 or 12 different areas. Yeah. And uh, well, that makes me think, you know, in addition to this book, which we can say, you know, if you're listening to the podcast, you should pick it up and, and look at these cases. What should people or what would you recommend people read if they are, you know, very much outside of ethics as a discipline, like, you know, like ethics professors or something? If they are if they are wanting to stay current, they have a million things on the go, obviously, but they're product managers or they're analysts for a specific kind of product or what have you, are there places that they should monitor or, or kind of keep an eye out for cases for the, maybe it applies to themselves or maybe it's a more general thing, but what can people who are non-philosophers or, or non-academics look for to stay abreast of these kinds of issues? You know, a great source is um, 
well, <laughs> newspapers are actually great for this. And mm. MIT Technology Review is a phenomenal source for like really interesting cases that are usually pretty cutting edge. And they are usually citing pretty interesting researchers in that area to kind of explain why the mortgage algorithm is biased in some way. And so MIT Technology Review, they had a reporter, Karen Howard, that was there for a while, and she just recently left. But the, those are really interesting, cutting-edge articles about large language models or mortgage algorithms or predictive analytics. And you get both the kind of the grounding within an interesting researcher as well as a critical look at the actual technology. That If you were going to pick one source that's also very accessible to practice, I think that is one that's a good one. Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And I also, I guess, as people talk about ethics, and maybe I think one of the problems is they don't talk about ethics enough in organizations mm-hmm. or in businesses. But if they are, I think it's very difficult to try to quantify it or tr- to try to say we have become more ethical. And maybe that's not the right way to think about it. But I wonder, how would you encourage people who are always about their, you know, KPIs and all this stuff, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. How would how would they try to improve their ethics? Because I think about, you know, Google not, just saying like, we're not evil. <laughs> that's great. But yeah. um, how can you become less evil or, or more good or something like right. that? How do you encourage people with the business mindset to think about ethics? Yeah. Oh, that. So just in general. So I also for years just taught business ethics. And so the same thing holds for teaching this as well. So that's why it's interesting in a business school. You know, when I'd say in general, when we're talking about like different ethical theories to use, we talk about them as frameworks that are useful to identify what the problem is and how we can, that if if we are broad enough in our scope of who matters, so suppliers matter, employees matter, including shareholders, but like a lot of different stakeholders matter. And if we take a long-term view, a year or two years or three years versus next month, mm-hmm. that what's the right decision ethically and what's the right decision strategically merge? You know, so some of the idea is just to broaden the the framework, like the framing of the problem so that the students actually think of things more long-term and that they learn that the problem is sometimes when we're very short-term focused and very myopic. Then we tend to do a Purdue pharmaceutical where we're selling opioids to people in Appalachia, making a quick buck where we develop teen vaping products. There's always this short-term opportunity to take advantage of uh, something, you know, like especially around data analytics, because the user, the subject won't know for forever. For, I mean, forever as in a couple of years until there's an expose about it. Yeah. Um, and you can make some money off of it. And so, but that's not unique to data analytics. We have that in business all the time. And so the key for in business schools and in general, when we teach this is to teach them that the best business decision is one that appeases many stakeholders and has a, is long-term good for the company, not a short-term kind of opportunistic way. And it's interesting whenever you ask students or anybody when they say, well, why should a business care? And you just ask them like, have you ever worked for an untrustworthy boss or had an untrustworthy coach, someone who's you know, unfair, irrational, myopic, short-sighted, you know, opportunistic, and everyone to a person nods and says yes. And like, how exhausting was that to work with them? Like just in economic terms, that's a waste. Like that's why economics, we like trust because it it lubricates our exchanges. So it's easy to work with you in the future if you're a trustworthy person. If I think you have my interest in the long term, I'm willing to 
kind of trust you easier. I don't have a contract, all those kind of things. It's the idea that business is actually easier when there's more trust. Um, mm -hmm. And so we, that's one of the advantages of teaching this in a business school is that like you have an entire section on why don't you be opportunistic? Like why, why not be unethical? Like why, what's the economic rationale as to why you should not be unethical? And fortunately there's actually readings on that. Like, so as to making the case as to why businesses in the long-term and people in the long-term are, are better off strategically if they act in a way that people can trust, if that makes sense. So that's, that, I mean, it sounds very pragmatic in both the um, kind of yeah, well, like, we like pragmatic. version of pragmatism, but also the practical idea of pragmatism. Um, hmm. But I am a pragmatist is in the philosophical tradition of it. So it kind of, it, the idea is that it all dovetails together. Yeah. Well, and that makes me think also about, you know, trust is often, or at least it can be implied, right? It's not codified because then it becomes law. It's not necessarily the same right. thing. What about regulation? Like, what do you encourage people to think about in terms of regulation? Like, obviously, you should follow laws or else face, you know, jail time potentially or something like that. That's one right. thing. But I think, you know, with the GDPR and all these actual laws or policies coming out, I think some people are, are for that kind of thing and other people think it's too much red tape or what have you. How do you, yeah. how do you encourage people to think in an ethical way or think ethically about the rules and regulations surrounding data? Yeah, I think, um, so there are two things that come to mind. One is that there's lots of times in the past where industries are given a lot of rope to develop, you know, like the tech industry in general. And, and just naturally regulators are always behind. Like, so you hear in the US, you know, our regulators talking to people and asking questions about social network executives. And it, it is very clear that they don't know how it works, right? Like, so there's this natural gap in that they don't know what's going on, but also there's this very real need to actually let people get going and let the industry actually develop. Mm -hmm. And that was true in the steel industry and the automotive industry, for, in lots of different industries, this occurs. Um, and then and then when we come around and we're like, you know, actually, turns out smoking is not that great, or it turns out you're polluting the rivers in Pittsburgh, you steal companies, we kind of would like you to stop that. There is a natural reaction of industry to say, you cannot regulate us. We will go out of business. Everyone's going to lose their job. There's no way we can be competitive. And, and so in some ways, the reaction of like, we don't want more laws will kill us is... Mm. In business schools, that is, I always say, just a natural reaction of industry to say that. And so, but sometimes they're warranted. So, and that, that's the second point. And so just because business tells us that they'll go out of business like the automotives did or steel companies did, um, if there are any new rules that they'll be ruined, obviously we still have steel companies and we still have the automotive industry. That just didn't happen. We just have safety laws. And so, or uh, like mileage requirements and stuff like that. So the, but the other thing is, I do think that there are interesting problems where the market's not really working in this area around data and analytics, which is an issue. And so specifically there are, when you look at people like the aggregators of data around data brokers and data aggregators, which is a significant portion of the buying and selling of consumer data for for someone in a business school, it looks a little bit odd because there's no good market pressure to correct bad behavior, right? Like, so usually we can be absent of regulations when shareholders, employees, or consumers can put pressure on a company to behave better. So think boycotts or just not going to McDonald's and going to Burger King instead. 
but we don't really have a good market mechanism to correct behavior that we don't like when we don't have a relationship with a company like a data aggregator or a data broker. And so that's, that's an area that I think is fairly interesting of where there may end up being more regulation around people that hold individualized consumer data only because we don't have a way to, to signal to the company that we don't like what they're doing, if that makes sense. So yeah. that, yeah, that, that's a place where I could see more regulation in the future. Yeah, well, and that comes, I mean, there's a lot of ways in which like ethical questions are sparked, right? And it, it seems like only when there is an expose, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. that people really respond in, in negative ways if things are going not according to the way that they thought, right? Mm-hmm. Um, data in some ways is so visible, right? Like we see charts and graphs every day if you're working in most industries. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, these sort of collection methods or privacy questions or ethical concerns are very much hidden in code or what have mm-hmm. you, right? Mm-hmm. How do you how do you encourage people to think about it who are working on things that, you know, they just, the data comes in and their job is very specific. Like in most cases, nobody sees it from end to end. Right. So yeah, how do you encourage people to think about this thing that they only ever, if they touch it, they touch it at just a, a fraction of, of the yeah. whole, you know, that's a great that's a great point because I think in some ways it'd be like being a worker on a manufacturing line and asking like how can you make the car safer because it exactly. really isn't at that point their job and they can't even see the whole picture to know who could have actually asked that question before so they could even ask like where'd you get this data and someone says oh we ran it by legal it's completely fine don't worry about it and how are you to know? Like you, you wouldn't yeah. be able to ask any more questions than that. So even if you cared, it's not really clear that you have the clearance. I think in some ways that's why it would have to come from someone that is seeing the entire picture. Like, so a high enough product manager that actually owns the whole picture of the supply chain of data coming through is to be asking those types of questions throughout. I think for executives or people that are far enough along that are removed from the technical, what's going on at the, at the level of touching the data, is to know that there are really good questions that you can ask. Like, and so in some ways I think there's this, so even if someone cared, they might not know the questions to ask of the data analyst. And so in some ways it's a matter of teaching both the top management team, which is why I think teaching in business schools is so important is to get people who are gonna be overseeing processes to know the problems that can be going on underneath the surface. But then also giving in engineering and in data science, the actual ability to communicate up and say, you know, when I do these tests, just know that this is the only thing I'm able to promise. I can promise you true positives, for example. I can't really speak to the false positives. You know what I mean? Like, in fact, I think I'm over labeling or something along those lines. And so I think that there's ways that you have to communicate to both, but to ask a line worker that's working with the data and making predictions, and it's just very difficult. I mean, as someone who worked in an organization, you know, and like you create a presentation for someone with the financial numbers. I was just working in like making a prediction on finance numbers. Like you don't know how it's being used in the future. So I don't, I, I don't know what they did with the model. You know what I mean? They could have used it for anything before they went to the board. So it's really hard for someone working at that point to do much other than know the types of questions that should be asked and how to answer them. Yeah. Well, and that goes to like an, an organizational culture, right? Of, of trust, but also of ethical decision-making and things like that. I think, you know, anyone you ask would say like, yes, we want a culture of trust and we want to make right. ethical decisions, but obviously that's not always the case. 
people that want to grow in you know their their data fluency or the amount of data they they can process and use and make decisions with how can they integrate or improve the way that they integrate ethical questions or or ethics in general are there ways that you can add that into the whole like system as you're building it because i hear a lot about people you know making data lakes and making these pipelines and all of that are would you how would you encourage people to bring ethics into that and where at what points maybe yeah so I, I usually would say when I'm teaching business ethics, just generally, that they should probably not even use the word ethics because that usually just shuts down conversations. So we, it's better if they use the term like good business decisions. And I am fine with that, like to argue that we need it. And that's why the terms like trust or stakeholders are useful or legitimate. In fair is okay as well because they don't shut down conversations. They actually, uh, everyone understands that stakeholders are strategic and an ethical you know, it's, it's a more generalized term that we can ask at the point of data collection, you know, at the point of, you know, modeling and making assumptions about the data, you know, designing what is the phenomenon that we're trying to measure and does that actually fit with our business needs? So I think in, in some ways, and in fact, I have a friend of mine, Bobby Parmar, that we're writing a paper about how what we've made a mistake is thinking that, that the, the obligations that businesses have to justify their decisions or explain what they're doing have not changed. So when, when they were manufacturing lines and we started automating them with robots, we still had, you know, obligations to our shareholders and our employees, to the unions. We had OSHA requirements. And just because we automated part of it didn't mean that those obligations went away. We still had to justify whether or not the quality was there, whether or not why we picked that robot to work in the line, all of the different metrics stayed the same. And so I think in some ways, the fact that we should be asking just like we would ask, like, where did we get that data? So at the point of pulling the data in, like, are there any, especially now in the United States with the FTC rulings, any analytics that comes off of bad data or dirty data, I'll just call it, like that the FTC has decided that you included data that was a privacy violation and how it was collected. All the models have to be destroyed. You know what I mean? Like, so there's, there's a real need to actually put, just like in manufacturing, a real front end point on like why you're asking these questions about the data and that that's just about the data. And then also then about, you know, what assumptions are we making about the data? Who are we penalizing in the data set? Who's not included in this data set? All of those types of questions. And then, you know, there are tons of tests to do afterwards about not only just discrimination, but, you know, who's harmed by making a mistake and how are we actually creating something so that we can monitor as it's ongoing. So I think there's things that you can anticipate and then there's a lot that you just have to design so that you're keeping track of the manufacturing of this outcome over time to see if it's getting off track or not, if that makes sense. So yeah. insurance adjudication, whether or not a claim is going to be respect, you know, kind of uh, whether they're going to give you money for your claim of for insurance or actually deny it, whether they label it as fraud. There are whole dashboards that they create in order to see for claim adjudication, whether it's going off track, like are we penalizing young people versus old people. Are we penalizing automotive claims versus house claims, home claims? So that type of monitoring over time also is important. So in before the data gets in, as you're actually looking at the data and its assumptions and then monitoring it over time. Yeah. Yeah. And you, well, actually, you bring up an interesting point that you know, ethical questions have been asked for at least thousands of years, really, right? right? We can go back to Aristotle or what have you. When we think about data, it's obviously a very, in some sense, a very new, even if it's been around, I don't know, 
well, it depends how you define it, but when we think about right. modern computing, right, it's relatively new. And so we have this large history of ethical questions and debates, and then we have this very new technology. I wonder how you would explain sort of the differences or maybe lack of differences. Maybe it's, maybe it really is down when it comes down to it, the same thing, or mm-hmm. are there new questions that data is provoking that simply didn't get asked before, didn't really, mm-hmm. didn't really come up before. I wonder how you would think about it. Yeah. So I think, I think there is something different because before, if, if someone was putting in a big system with this huge data set, it was extremely expensive. So they hired a bunch of systems consultants who, you know, looked at the organization and all the business requirements. And so it was like a year long process or two year long process and lots and lots of money was spent. And now that same type of like computing power and data analytics can be done almost off the shelf or quickly, or you hire a couple of undergrads to code it. And so it's just, it's so easy to do widely, you know, so it's not just internal in the manufacturing process or in customer service, it's actually being used with users and customers. So I do think that there's something different about it and that it's, it's just so widely dispersed within the organization and it's not as much thought about why that model and how does that model fit or that AI model fit with our larger business obligations. I also, just the sheer, the disconnect between the, the person that's in the data set is different. So when we've had data before, it was usually about maybe our customers, you know, that were our customers. And then we would look at it as I'm a pharmaceutical company and to see how, you know, and I'd be doing trials or customer service around those customers, but they were our customers. And now there's this disconnect between the data that I'm using and the person that's actually the subject in the data. And so I think that does introduce new problems. You know what I mean? Like, so before I didn't have a privacy issue, it was my data and it was about my customers, but mm. now I don't even know who's in my data set and I don't know how it was gathered. And so that type of distancing from the collection of data puts a strain that we have to think about new things and especially around privacy and around kind of not knowing who's in the data and the the problems that that might introduce. So does that to say that I think there are some new things that we have to think more closely. Now, privacy has been around for a while, but it brings it more to the fore, I would say, than we did before. And I think that, I, I do think there's something interesting within organizations that strains even our good business ethics theories. So like stakeholder theory around customers and suppliers. And and I was trained under someone who does stakeholder theory and I love stakeholder theory. I think it's a great idea to broaden who we consider. But a lot of times customer or the organizations are creating data analytics pro- programs and models whose subject in the data and the person that's impacted are not customers of theirs. So there's no financial relationship with Hmm. the subject of the analytics program, the person that's being predicted. So I'm gonna predict who's gonna go on welfare, who should be getting welfare, who's fraudulent in their welfare claim. I'm gonna be predicting which students, middle school student is actually a future criminal. That's a case that I love teaching that's in the book that it's a great, um, from like Tampa, Florida or something along those lines. So who Hmm. is a possible criminal? Now the person that coded that and the data that they used had no, no relationship with the students who are the actual people that are being harmed or helped by the data analytics program. And I think that's an interesting problem for organizations to think through because we have learned as businesses, we've learned to think about more than just our shareholders, that we need to think about treating our customers well, our employees, our suppliers, and our community, all of whom that we have financial exchanges and relationships with, we transact in the marketplace with them. But it's really a stretch to get a business to say, okay, great, you've considered all these six types of stakeholders, 
Now you have to consider someone that you have no relationship with. And if you upset them, it doesn't impact you at all. I mean, there's no financial relationship with them at all. And I think that is a really interesting problem that even within business schools, we're really grappling with um, identifying that that's a problem, that we need to figure out how to teach organizations that you do need to care about them and why. And so this, that's an interesting ethical problem around what's their obligation to, you know, as an example, if you're a social network and you have someone that's the um, subject of a deep fake video, what's your obligation to that person, you know, where you're just the host, you know what I mean? Like you're the social network. And so I think these types, or if you're designing the predictor of criminals uh, from students, the student's never going to buy your product. You have no financial relationship with them. What's your obligation to them? And so that's where I think there are interesting, it strains even our good business ethics theories to think through what is our obligation as a business to those subjects that are so far apart from our operating procedures, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is fascinating. How do you start to, obviously we can't like get to the bottom of it, but how would you encourage someone to start to think about the uh, the effect of somebody, the, your work and its effect on somebody that you will never encounter. What, how do you encourage people to even start thinking about that? You know, it's inter- no, it's a it's an interesting. I always tell the students that they shouldn't be. You know, sometimes their eyes are like, wait, no wonder organizations aren't thinking about them. Like they kind of can see over the course of like seeing, like when we do like a confusion matrix with you know true positives and false negatives, and then we mm-hmm. put in there. Like who benefits from these types of mistakes? You know, like what if we over categorize people in a certain way and they, they suddenly see, oh, gosh, the students that are being predicted to be future criminals, they're the ones that are harmed by being over labeled. You know what I mean? Like as and they can yeah. they can enumerate all the harms and stuff like that. Well, yeah. what's the developing firm's, you know, incentive to actually care? They have the opposite incentive. They, it's almost benefits them to overlabel them because their true positives look better, you know. And so they they look yeah. like they're catching more criminals, even though they're falsely labeling people as criminals. And this happens in police forces as well. It's not just with students. And so I think what I usually say to them is, it is straining even our current theories. So don't feel like you're not getting it. Like it's it's actually why this is a continual problem within organizations. If anything, we're able to see. Why can why organizations continue to have these problems? Why do we keep seeing people overlabeled as possible criminals or identified for fraud when they're not fraudulent? Well, and we can kind of see the market pressures of organizations and why they don't have to internalize those costs. And so I think, I mean, unfortunately, usually when this happens elsewhere, when there's a, a third-party externality, meaning like I'm transacting with the school and giving them a new analytics program, but it's actually harming a third party. Usually that's when regulations come in. Like, so it's the idea that uh, the user is actually not a party to the transaction and yet is being harmed the most. And so that's usually when regulations have to come in to kind of make them inter- the company internalize their harms that they're creating. And I say, unfortunately, because I'm in a business school, so we don't usually like regulations as the solution because regulations are clunky. They Businesses usually try to figure out a way around them. So it doesn't really make them it's better to find a business solution that actually makes them see the wiseness of actually, you know, creating a better solution. And so part of it is actually showing, putting pressure on like the school to help internalize that cost or take the, they take the perspective of the user and have people actually think about who they're actually harming. I'd say the generation of say 30 and below, they are very much aware of the power dynamics between a corporation and the user. 
And so we're the subject of the data. And so even in a business school, so I, I, I say that about my own people, that we in a business school usually think corporations being powerful is a good thing. This next generation is not so sure about that. Like they see the impact of companies even within a business school on people who are disadvantaged and they don't like it. You know what I mean? Like, so that is another place where companies are going to have to be worried about is, and you see this with Google or Palantir, where there are actually employees that are seeing the use of their data analytics programs and saying, like, we as employees will walk out if you do that. You need to kind of cut that tie. And so that is a market pressure is the employees themselves. And there is a generation that actually really understands that in a way that it, you don't even have to teach them. They kind of get it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, well, that's, it brings up a bunch of interesting questions. I guess one of the, one of them would be if you are working on data mm -hmm. in either capacity, like, like actually, you know, organizing it yourself as a data analyst or reading it as some kind of, you know, manager or what have you, are there ways that you can encourage people to speak up about it or to to ask questions? I mean, I, I know most companies say that they're very open or transparent, but then they don't necessarily mm -hmm. spend time saying like, let's discuss ethics. And as you said earlier, like maybe the person in the business organization who says, let's discuss ethics gets a, gets a bunch of dirty looks. Right. So yeah, 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 yeah. what yeah. do you encourage people to do if like, maybe that's a good approach to say, hey, let's discuss ethics. Maybe it's not. Like, what would you yeah. do though? in these situations to just try to, I guess, implement more of this kind of thinking and not not rely on some really good employees to threaten to walk out if they're doing something right. bad. Yeah. So I'd say the first thing is to ask, like in what I would say is asking in meetings to think about like who are the main stakeholders, like who's impacted, not even say the word stakeholders if they don't, because you can think too narrowly even there, but like who's the most impacted by these design decisions and who's going to impact mm. them? Like, so just in general, like, and how are their interests being included? Like how, how can we make sure that this isn't gonna be on the front page of the New York Times? I mean, that's just a general <laughs> you know, question that they have to ask because it's only a matter of time before someone finds out about these types of things. You know, so they, it, it comes out eventually. You know, so whether it's like internally they find out or like externally, but like how, and then how are their interests actually included in the design of how we're testing, you know, especially around mistakes, like this idea of over predicting and under predicting is a real issue. And like, which types of mistakes are preferable to us and to the other stakeholders, like just to think broadly about who matters in this design. And it's really at the point of design. And that's where, that's where the magic needs to happen. I think a friend of mine, Ari Waldman has a book about privacy unbound. And it's mainly about the fact that a lot of times we put like data ethics and privacy questions in general counsel's office. And, and I, I love lawyers. I'm, I'm married to a lawyer. I, I think they're awesome, <laughs> but they are not in design decisions. And so it's really those product managers and the developers that need to be thinking through those questions of saying, you know, which features would it be inappropriate for us to use? You don't have to say unfair or unethical, like inappropriate, like which, which ones would be inappropriate for us to use in this health decision. So we, should we use Chris's, you know, GPA from undergrad? In determining how much healthcare he should receive. Now, I think most people would say that seems completely inappropriate, but those are the types of questions that need to happen at that level and asking like what's inappropriate versus not, you know, what if like who's most impacted by these decisions and how are their mm -hmm. interests? Like what would they think? You know, just playing devil's advocate, like what would they think if they knew about these design decisions? And if the answer is 
they wouldn't like it very much. You know, like even just articulating things um, is a good one. A friend of mine has four boys and they're older now, but he caught them. I don't remember what they were doing. They're probably throwing baseballs toward the house with the windows. And and he said once, before you're going to do something, just say it out loud. Just have <laughs> the words leave your lips and, and just say it out loud and see how it sounds when you say it out loud. And he was trying to get them to just like, hear how stupid the idea was, you know, to say it out loud. But it's, it's actually a very useful technique to even just articulate without any ethical terms whatsoever. Like, so are we saying that we're just going to over predict students, you know, as being future criminals because it makes our true positives look better? You know, so just yeah. saying that everyone would be like, oh, yeah, that sounds terrible. Like, we really probably shouldn't do that. But even just saying things out loud sometimes doesn't happen. Yeah, I wish everyone would do that. That's a great policy to to follow. <laughs> Just Imagine saying, well, I know. I call it the Jim Bowling test. The Jim Bowling is my friend, and so I use it for just say it out loud. Great. Just put the words leave your lips. But also, you brought up like uh, a lot of the time, it does go to an attorney who says like this is, in my opinion, legal or illegal, mm-hmm. and people I think confuse that for like okay, well then it's ethical or it's not ethical. What, I mean, for people listening, what are the differences or is there even a difference between ethical and legal? And how would you, for people who aren't lawyers or aren't ethicists, how would you encourage them to think about it? There's a huge difference. And I think legal is important because, well, one, legal can explain the bare minimum. And usually legal understands the spirit of the law to explain where you're in the gray zone. So, you know, so something that's a little bit funky around disparate treatment or disparate impact around discrimination they might say, look, this isn't actually a decision that's governed by that law, but the same ideas apply. So I think in some ways they can be useful in explaining the spirit where you're getting into the ethical problem as well. But in most other places within an organization, there's there's tons of times where, you know, you don't go by just the bare minimum of the law. You know what I mean? Like you have to make good decisions because um, maybe your severance is a certain amount and you give people a certain amount of you know, fourth, you know, like foreknowledge about when someone's going to have to be moved to a different division. And that's what's legal, but you actually give them more because you want people to trust you in the future. And so we regularly treat people better than like what's required minimally. And so legal is interesting, but around business decisions, it's not, it doesn't really tell you what to do. It just tells you what not to do, if that makes, you know what I mean? Like, so I almost think of it as a floor, Um, but there's so many different directions that you can go forward strategically that and it's more of a question of like okay i understand my legal minimums but what's in the best interest of the company long term you know given i probably should have at least an eye towards these users or the subjects that are going to be actually impacted the most by my decision so how do i get their interest in here so that we're all designed so that we're together you know in like a conjoined interest yeah yeah that's a great point and it makes me think in terms of cases that you've looked at or, or policies that you've followed, what are some of the key moments in the book for people who haven't seen it yet that stand out to you as, as good examples or interesting examples of people doing these kinds of, uh, this kind of thinking or this kind of, or maybe they didn't do it and this was the consequence. What are, what are some just cases that stand out to you from the book? For the good one. So, so the book is really for teaching and it's interesting in general sometimes it can be seen as too negative. And the reason why it's helpful to learn from negative decisions is, this is the example that I always give. Anyone who has had a really, really great boss, you don't usually realize all the ways they were great and great leaders. 
until you have a bad boss and then you have a bad boss and you're like, oh, I didn't even realize that. But like Chris was extremely fair all the time, but it didn't really show up until you had someone that was extremely unfair, that gave all the preferences to their friends or had nepotism problems or, you know, treated people in a discriminatory way or something along those lines. And so sometimes the negative cases help identify the thing that you actually want, if that makes sense. So it's kind of a useful trick for teaching because only showing good cases, you, it's hard for people to identify what what's good about it. You know, so that one thing I would say, I would say that, so companies though, saying that, I let me, I'll say some good things. Like, so if we look in like social media, for example, I think an interesting place, putting the Elon Musk stuff aside, is that I think Twitter is an interesting case of a company that really hires well around responsible AI and AI ethics people who have a voice within the organization. They are trying to do the right thing. That doesn't mean that they're perfect. They make mistakes, but they are like putting, again, putting Elon Musk aside. I'm not talking about the Musk thing <laughs> or, or his ideas. Like I don't agree with his ideas, but like they were trying to do the right thing around the, the, the 2020 elections and, you know, stumbling some, but kind of trying to go in the right direction. And, you know, mm-hmm. Facebook's another example where they kind of just like are stridently saying, we don't agree with any of you. You know what I mean? Like we, we think that this is the way to go and we just, we don't find this important at all. And this is kind of our metric. So I think Twitter, even if we see them stumbling some, they're trying to actually do the right thing. And being an ethical organization doesn't mean getting it right all the time. It just means kind of like revisiting of saying, oh, did I make the right decision? Oh, maybe we need to change a great quote. And I'm not going to get it right. Was like, if you're not making mistakes and you're probably not doing anything very interesting. And so like students and people shouldn't be surprised when they're faced with an ethical dilemma, even if we just call it like a problem, you know, a business problem, because the only people that don't face problems are the ones that aren't doing anything interesting at all, like are sitting in a cubicle and not doing very much. Anytime you're moving forward and trying to do things, you come up with issues. And sometimes you make an initial decision that is a little bit off, but Twitter seems to be trying to write itself. So, and that's a good lesson just in general, I think around this area is like trying things out and like being open to change. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great point. And that uh, it makes me think of when I used to teach media ethics, uh, I would say, you know, it's about engaging with ideas of good and bad, but it's mm-hmm. not being good or bad because it's not a binary like that. And it, even if you did do something good, it doesn't guarantee you're always going to be good and, and right. vice versa. So. Yeah. To, to start to wrap up, because I know I've taken a lot of your time and I appreciate it, people listening to this who want to start engaging more with ethical decision-making, ethical data and analytics, what are, what are two things that they could start doing today that would have an impact? If you were talking to people who work at an organization, whether that's working literally on the data or just receiving data, what are two things that they could start doing to just try to engage more with ethical conversations? Right. So I think that, and again, just like you said, it's just an engagement. It's like asking questions and like, and knowing that there are answers. So I would say if they, if they know they can ask questions about the data and questions about what, what data did you not use? What features of the data did you not use? There should be answers to that. Like if, if someone said, I just used all the data that I had and I didn't really think about what features I should include. That should be a red flag. Like, so, because that means that whoever was looking at the data, cleaning it and curating it and deciding what data to use, wasn't being very thoughtful about it and might not have had the guidance to do that and just could, well, I'm just going to take all that I can without thinking about why I might take that data. 
And so even asking questions about like having an answer for why that data, why, uh, why not other data, what data did you leave behind, you know, would help one, educate you, me, the person listening as to why those decisions were made. And it also would get people to start thinking through, well, what data shouldn't I use? You know what I mean? Like, so what data, what data is actually not good to use in this decision? And then similarly around, you know, the assumptions that are being made about, like similar questions about what assumptions did you make? What did you try? All of that, anything to get around the idea that these are people getting their hands dirty and making very human decisions about data. Because I think sometimes the recipients of the outcome think that this was some magic box where someone just pressed a button and all of a sudden the right answer came out of all the data, right? And But that is actually, I always say, somewhat dismissive of the work of being a computer and data scientist, which I always jokingly say, what do you think they get a PhD in? Like there are people with PhDs in this area. Mm. They don't just press a button. You know what I mean? Like they actually are making decisions, human decisions about what's important and what's not important. And so the more questions the recipient can get asked about why did you make those human decisions? It, well, one, just get the conversation around all these value-laden decisions and get the actual person that does it used to being having to answer them. They, and they should be always able to answer in a way that you understand. There's nothing is that complicated that they can't explain it to a good executive or manager that even if they don't touch the data, they should be able to understand it. And it's just a matter of getting someone to communicate it. So those types of questions, I would say, would be the first thing. But those aren't very ethical, right? Like they're just... They're kind of just trying to get through. I mean, they are ethical. I would say they're ethical, but you don't have to use that term to kind of get through what the decisions are. Thank you for that. And also, if people want to see more of your work or, or follow you, where should they look? So, well, I have like, so it's easy if you Google Kristen Martin, just because my daughter just did this and she laughed because just as an academic and at Notre Dame, there's just like a mm. ton of stuff. Oh, yeah, and so yeah, I, I usually have a website with my articles and stuff. I do actually have a podcast called Tech Talks, which is all about tech ethics. You know, so we take one academic article and I talk to the author and make it, but we talk in normal language. So my idea is to take a complicated idea, but make it accessible to others. We keep it at like 20 minutes just to make it no big words. So we try to make everything very simple and plain and easy and to make it so that people can actually get it from like normal people, like non-academics and academics outside their field. And then, and I'm on Twitter, but I don't actually tweet that much. I'm more of a stalker. So that's not, it's not a good place for you being, they could follow me there, but I don't tweet that much. <laughs> well, excellent. And of course, there's the book that they could pick up if they oh, like. Yes, Where, yeah, yeah, yeah. Kirsten, thank you so much for speaking to us today about your book and about the work that you're doing. I think it's super important. And today has been super informative. So I, I really loved it. Oh, great. Thanks for having me. This has been fun. Thank you so much for joining this episode of Data Chats. And to our listeners, you can harness the power of your organization's data with Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Improve your data team's approach to analysis and stakeholder communication and empower them to drive business outcomes through critical insights. Learn more at pragmaticinstitute.com slash data.